the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Wendy Pope. Her book is Hidden Potential, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. Jonathan Catherman, Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. And Dodd Everts, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Got a full program today, so we're glad to have you with us. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, a second wave of coronavirus could coincide with the start of the flu season, proving to be even more devastating than the enduring COVID-19 pandemic. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned earlier on Tuesday, Americans should continue to practice social distancing to mitigate the spread of the virus, even as some states attempt to reopen their economies in the coming weeks. CDC Director Robert Redfield told the Washington Post that social distancing has had an enormous impact on containing the outbreak, but Americans need to plan ahead and consider getting a flu shot in the summer so that when winter comes, hospitals are not once again overburdened. Um, In other related uh, developments, coronavirus has mutated into at least 30 different strains, according to one study. Not sure what that means in the um, broader scheme of things, rather. And California County may have traced the earliest U.S. coronavirus deaths. President Trump on Tuesday defended protesters who have turned up at state capitals and outside governor's mansions to demand the reopening of businesses to jumpstart a fractured economy crippled by business closures and massive layoffs. Uh, They want to get back to work, the president told reporters during his daily coronavirus task force briefing at the White House. They have to take care of their families. They don't want to do this. Protests have um, uh, cropped up in several states in recent weeks with participants demanding an end to state lockdown orders that are forcing many to stay indoors and the immediate reopening of businesses to aid those out of work. COVID-19 treatment hydroxychloroquine showed no benefit, more deaths in a VA virus study. President Trump accused Harvard University of taking money from the federal government as part of the Paycheck Protection Program under the CARES Act, intended to benefit small businesses, and said he's going to be asking the Ivy League school to pay it back. Harvard is going to pay back the money. They shouldn't be taking it, the president said on Tuesday at the White House, uh, came under scrutiny after a number of large businesses received money from the $350 billion relief fund, leaving small businesses out as the coffers ran dry last week. I'm not going to mention any other names, but when I saw Harvard, uh, they have one of the largest endowments anywhere in the country, maybe in the world. They're going to pay that money back. In the battle against the coronavirus, 3D printed nasal swabs have entered the healthcare arsenal. And Iran says it launched first, uh, the first military satellite, its first, amid U.S. tension. Well, a poll. White Democrats are bothered that Joe Biden is a white male. But black Democrats aren't nearly as troubled. I find the whole thing rather troubling. Mona Sharon, she writes, I think I recall that the name Redskins didn't bother most Native Americans either. Meanwhile, Biden is having a terrible time raising funds and is woefully behind Trump. Well, that's not entirely true. He had a pretty good month in March. 
Well, the Senate has passed the Paycheck Protection Program with the House scheduled to vote on Thursday. The full text of the bill can be found online. Nikki Haley says of the legislation, every member of Congress should be on record for every one of these stimulus bills. This is a massive amount of debt, and they owe it to the taxpayers that they work for to show and explain their vote. Well, the media is misreporting the COVID-19 situation in Georgia as they uh, dogpile on Governor Kemp. Georgia residents and writer Eric Erickson explains in Georgia, newly given tests are not meeting the backlog. I confirm this all with public health officials. If you get a test now, you'll get the results back very quickly. But there is still a backlog of tests from early April coming through. They didn't send those tests to other facilities lest they get damaged or lost. As a result, much of the daily increase is happening because of those old tests. Well, Kemp explained his plan and took on the tough questions. Guy Benson says the Georgia governor sounded pretty sensible under tough questioning uh, from the mainstream media. I don't know if his reopening approach is correct, but he's defending it pretty well. Time and data will tell. Jay Koss says none of us knows how this virus really works. None of us knows what's going to happen next. None of us knows what the right thing to do is, and none of us knows what the politics of this is going to be. Stop being so mean to each other. Have a little charity for one another. Everybody's trying desperately to do their best for their people. Senator Tom Cotton says Beijing has claimed that the virus originated in Wuhan wet market where wild animals were sold. Uh, But evidence to uh, counter this theory emerged in January. Chinese researchers reported the Lancet in January that the first known case had no contact with the market. And Chinese state media acknowledged that finding. There's no evidence the market sold bats or um, pangolins, I have no idea, the animals from which the virus is thought to have jumped to humans. And the bat species that carries it isn't found within 100 miles of Wuhan. Study, coronavirus has mutated at least 30 times and more details on that. The results show that medical officials have vastly underestimated the overall ability of the virus to mutate and finding different strains have affected different parts of the world, leading to potential difficulties in finding an overall cure. Meanwhile, to avoid doing their own housework, some rich people are paying their help top dollar to quarantine with them. Huh. Well, the airlines are sitting on billions of dollars for canceled flights. The report from NextGov indicates that there are currently enough of these cancellations that $10 billion worth of refunds are in limbo. The airlines want to give people travel vouchers instead of money, basically saying that once they have your money, they're going to keep it whether you fly or not. And Stacey Abrams says that voter fraud is a myth. She seems to forget her claim to fame was voter fraud, by the way. And on this day in history, the year 2000, in a pre-dawn raid, armed immigration agent sees Alien Gonzalez, a Cuban boy, at the center of a custody dispute for his relative's home in Miami. He is reunited with his father at St. Andrews Air Force Base near Washington. 1864, Congress authorizes the use of the phrase, in God we trust, on U.S. coins. 1898, Congress authorizes the creation of the first U.S. volunteer cavalry, also known as the Rough Riders. 1915, the first full-scale use of deadly chemicals in warfare takes place and German forces unleash chlorine glass against Allied troops at the start of the Second Battle in Belgium during World War I. And on this day in 1952, an atomic test in Nevada becomes the first nuclear explosion shown on live network television as a 31-kiloton bomb is dropped from a B-50 Super Fortress. 1954, a publicly televised session of um, Senate Army McCarthy's uh, hearing, Senator Army McCarthy's hearings begins. Senate 1970, millions of Americans concerned about the environment observed the first Earth Day. 
Today is Earth Day. 1993, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is dedicated in Washington, D.C. to honor the victims of Nazi extermination. And 1994, Richard M. Nixon, the 37th president of the United States, dies at a New York hospital four days after suffering a stroke. 2004, Army Ranger Pat Tillman, who traded in multi-million dollar NFL contract to serve in Afghanistan, is killed by friendly fire. He was 27. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We have the latest numbers for Oregon with regard to COVID-19. Oregon reports no new deaths of COVID-19 for the first time in weeks. The Oregon Health Authority reported 57 new cases of coronavirus in the state on Wednesday. But for the first time in over three weeks, state health officials reported no new deaths of COVID-19. The last time the OHA reported no deaths in Oregon was back in March the 29th. The new cases bring the statewide total to 2,059 people. They were found in the following counties, Clark, Coos, Deschutes, Jefferson, Lynn, Marion, Multnomah, Washington, and Yamhill, with Clackamas, Multnomah, and Washington being the highest in number. Ten for Clackamas and Washington counties, 24 in Multnomah County. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is temporarily sidelined to push to allow proxy voting in the House after Republicans slammed the Democrat uh, the crafted plan which was designed to mitigate health risks during the coronavirus pandemic, but would mark a significant change in how Congress does business. The plan had been slated for a vote on Thursday. Not clear now what exactly is going to happen. And President Trump said Tuesday he will temporarily suspend immigration to the United States for at least 60 days in order to make sure Americans laid off during the pandemic are first in line for new jobs. He had tweeted late Monday that he planned to sign an executive order halting immigration, said during his daily press briefing that the order would last 60 days. And the president has instructed the Navy to destroy any Iranian gunships harassing U.S. ships. These are gunboats. The president said that uh, he's instructed them to shoot down and destroy an Iranian gunboat harassing American ships in the wake of a tense encounter in a series of them in the Persian Gulf. I have instructed the U.S. Navy to shoot them down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats. The encounter happened last week. Six U.S. Navy warships were conducting drills in the U.S. Army Apache, attacked helicopter, attack helicopters rather, in international water off Iran last Wednesday when they were repeatedly harassed by 11 Iranian gunboats. Uh, the Revolutionary Guard Navy vessels, the U.S. Navy's fifth fleet, reported. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Wendy Pope. Hidden Potential, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. We'll also hear from Jonathan Catherman, Guiding the Next Generation, and Don Everts, The Spiritually Vibrant Home. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and as promised, I've been looking forward to this conversation. We're going to talk with Wendy Pope here in just a moment. Her latest book is titled Hidden Potential, Revealing what God can do through you. Now, I love the phrase hidden potential because I think that potential is hidden in plain sight. But we strain to see that God has given each one of us potential to be used for his glory. Well, she is an author and speaker. She's a Proverbs 31 Ministries Bible teacher. She is convinced that every part of our experience can be an ingredient in our hidden potential. We habitually compare our insides to another's outside to determine our value and sum up our potential. That is such a true statement. If God's plan isn't to fix the things that have uh, fractured women's faith, 
but instead to show his power through life's difficulties. Well, her book is titled Hidden Potential. She looks at the reasons women continually compare themselves to one another, and she touches all aspects of a woman's life. Uh, If women are willing to pause for a moment, put the comparison list down, and listen to the answer that God gives in his word, they're going to discover a life-changing way to think about themselves. Well, Wendy Pope is a speaker with Proverbs 31 Ministries and contributes to P31 Online Devotional Encouragement for Today, which teaches over one million people daily. She is the author of several books, including Wait and See and Yes, No, and Maybe. She teaches thousands of women worldwide online through the one-year chronological Bible and lives with her family in North Carolina. And we are delighted to welcome Wendy Pope. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me back. I appreciate it. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you. I have to ask you before we start, how are you and your family doing under this new normal? Well, it's crazy as it sounds. This new normal is our normal normal, if that makes sense. My husband and I both (laughs) work outside of our home. So uh-huh. besides the fact of going to the store and the shelves being empty, it's really not been that different for us. Um, my daughter and my son both are adults and they, young adults, and they still live with us and they both have essential jobs. So they are getting up and going to work like normal. So we have not seen that huge of an impact on our normal normal. Um, so I, I can't say that it's, it's hurt us in any way. Uh, but it is it is very difficult to look at people's circumstances around our country um, and and not feel grief and sorrow. We certainly feel yeah, that absolutely. for our country um, and our yeah. community. We just in our small community we just had five cases over mm-hmm. the last week. So um, it's right. I mean, it's like right on the next road from us, which is you know kind of shocking that something from China came all the way, you know, all the way to a little town, five mountains, doesn't even have a stoplight, you know. Um, <laughs> so our hearts and prayers have definitely been hurting for, uh, and and we have been praying for our country and our leaders, yeah. our president. I know he's, whether you voted for him or not, he's in charge and he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders and he needs our prayers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, your book is titled Hidden Potential. Um, what made you feel compelled to write this book? I mean, I think I could answer that question because I think it's so necessary. But what motivated you to write uh, two women about their hidden potential? Well, honestly, this message unfolded all on its own. I, I, it was It's funny because when you were talking in the intro, you said hidden in plain sight. I love the way that you, that you said that, um, our potential is hidden in plain sight. This message was hidden in plain sight, honestly. I had taught... Um, on Moses at a church in Michigan at a conference um, and just fell in love with the, not that I didn't love Moses before, but the context of the idea of being a worthwhile possibility, that that mm. phrase became our phrase for the weekend. And when I went back the next year, those women still remembered that phrase, worthwhile possibility. And so when I was contracted by David C. Cook to write this book, um, I really hadn't planned on the theme being hidden potential, really, Georgine, that um, the Lord just unfolded that through His Spirit. And it's not something that anybody wants to write about. Hey, look, I failed. Let me tell you about it. Hey, <laughs> let me just show you all the ways that I fall. You know, I have faults, and I let my my mouth get away from me or my temper get away from me, some of the things that I share in the book. And, 
and here are my fears, um, and here are my frailties, the weakest parts of me. But I think what happens with um, authors who really follow the Spirit's leading is they write about things that they themselves struggle with so that we can identify with our readers because we all struggle with these fears, faults, failures, and frailties. And the idea of am I good enough or what do I have to do to be good enough to be used in the story, the greater narrative, the mega narrative that God is writing. She's good enough. She's got it. What do I need to do? And we compare. And when you were talking about hidden and plain sight, our potential is hidden in plain sight because we're too busy looking at other people rather than allowing God to say, hey, look in the mirror. Yes, you may have these fears, faults, failures, and frailties, but that's not what I see. I see you covered by the blood of Christ. I see you as holy because I've made you holy. Now, let's use what you have to for your good and my glory. And if that's the way we would look at things, we would allow God to show us our stories would be written with a lot more uh, exclamation points. How about that? Mm, yeah, I love that. I think so, so often we look at others and we think, oh, they are so articulate. They're attractive. They got mm-hmm. a meaningful ministry. And that's what I want to be. And so we we sort of try to insert ourselves into someone else's gifting and fail to see the unique place God has carved out for us in the kingdom of God and the story that he, as you put it, uh, the story that he's writing for us. And we can be so easily distracted. And of course, our enemy would love nothing more than for us to compare ourselves to one another oh, so that right. we never fully right. walk in what God is, has uh, called us to do. Right. Absolutely. And and that's what he wants us to do. He, he knows that he can't steal our salvation, so he wants to rob us of anything else that could be used to advance the gospel. And um, he paralyzes us with fear and, and with, with reminds us of our weaknesses by constantly navigating situations that shows us our weaknesses. And, and we can look at that in two different ways. We can say, yeah, I'm weak in that way, but because I'm weak, God is strong in me. Or we can say, yes, I'm weak. I can't do that. And we could just say, let's move, move on to that next person. Um, and we miss we miss the glory of God's story in our life when we do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. Now, why do you think so many of us, and I'm speaking of women, miss our hidden potential when God has given every one of us a role to play in the unfolding of his purpose and plan? For me, I can speak for myself. I, I allowed a false narrative, a negative narrative to play out and direct my life, to determine what I believed about myself, but also direct what I felt like I could, in my own strength, um, achieve. Uh, I tell the story in the book about wanting to play, being a really good softball player. I mean, I really could throw a pitch. I, I, I could. I, I, I knew it, not conceited-wise, but I knew I had a gift. But I only tried out, I only went out for the church team because it was the no-cut team. You see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I, I believe just enough that I could, I could do this, but I wasn't willing to take that risk to go and try out for something that I could be cut for because I didn't believe any further than, okay, this is all that I'm good enough for. I'm not good enough to wear a jersey of my, you know, high school alma mater. Um, 
so I believe for me, I just, I, I listened to that negative narrative that shaped my life for so long, even into my adulthood. And I even have to silence that narrative with truth as a 52-year-old woman in ministry who somebody would look at and say, oh, wow, she is so accomplished. She's written three books. But even I have to fight that negative narrative by saying, wait a minute. Yes, look at what she's doing. Um, Oh, wow, I want to do that in ministry, but I could never do that because X, Y, Z. And then I have to stop myself and say, wait a minute. Everybody has a story, and that's her story. And God has a story for me that doesn't include the story for her. He needs me to do my story Mm -hmm. and her to do her story and her to do her story and them to do their story. So I believe we allow the fears, faults, failures, and frailties to shape us and to direct where we're going and determine what we think of ourselves. We allow all of those negative things to script our lives rather than the truth of God's word to script our lives. Yes. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Wendy Pope. She's a speaker with Psalm 31 Ministries and contributes to their online devotional encouragement for today. And she's the author of Hidden Potential. This is a great book, uh, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. Yeah, you, you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Wendy Pope. She is the author of Hidden Potential, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. And I so appreciate how vulnerable and open you are in the book about yourself, because I do tend to think that we put authors and women who teach on a pedestal, and you remind us that we all struggle with things in common, but that God can use us, that every one of us has uh, potential. So I appreciate the approach that you've taken. I also wanted to mention that the, the book includes discussion, reflection, Bible study questions, which is good for personal study and for small group study as well. How do you see this book best being um, used to help draw us out and to recognize I have potential that God has placed in me? Oh, for sure. Um, it's perfect for individual study and for individual um, reading and application, but I feel like it's best in a small group setting uh, because we are more likely to share some of our vulnerabilities in a small group setting. And also, what I love about a small group is you've got a support group around you. Mm-hmm. And so when the, the, the hard things come out, when we are vulnerable enough to let it out, You've got a support around you, building you up and encouraging you. And so I, I love the idea of, you know, five to six women getting around, um, you know, uh, at a lunch table over uh, at lunch during work or in a home or a coffee shop in the evening, just going over the truths of the book and discussing, having the discussion questions. I, and, and right now, of course, we can't do that, but you certainly could do that on a Zoom Zoom meeting. Yes. People are getting experts on Zoom and FaceTiming. <laughs> um, you could certainly even do this study now um, and read and share with a couple people on a on a FaceTime or on a Skype or on a Zoom meeting. Absolutely, absolutely. Now with a password, from what I understand. Now you include um, your story, but certainly the stories of other women, both contemporary and ancient. Um, 
I appreciated your including both because it gives us a sense that, you know, we haven't really changed all that much in terms of the things that uh, that challenge us. But um, right, talk a little bit about how these women can help us better understand our own situation and how God is calling us and has already given us potential for purpose. Well, for sure, it makes us know that we're not alone. You know, mm-hmm. the, the friends that shared their stories in the book are friends that shared and risked, you know, sharing the hardest parts of them, the weakest parts of them, the most vulnerable parts of them, so that other women would know they're not the only one that lives with fear, but still it can be faithful. They're not the only one who has a frailty like um, my friend Meg, that never went to school. She never graduated from school. And certainly the world would tell her she could not accomplish anything because she didn't even have a high school degree. But she has surrendered that to God and said, just use me however. And she walks in the fullness of God's story for her life. However, she still has the frailty. She can't go back and fix that right now in her life. And so that's what I love, the fact that the women that shared their stories in the book, they didn't overcome them. They still live with their fear, their faults, their failures, and their frailty, just like Moses did. Mm-hmm. It never says in Scripture that God took away his speech problem. Never. It's just all of a sudden you see when you read the narrative that's written, Aaron's talking to Pharaoh, and then all of a sudden Moses speaks, and then wow, does he speak? And then, okay, no longer do you hear from Aaron. You're only hearing from Moses. It took a little while for him to get that confidence. He may still have had that stutter if that's indeed what he had. We don't know that God took it away. We don't know that he didn't. But we know in Scripture it doesn't say, and Moses was healed by God, and he could now talk confidently like a true leader that would be worthy to lead God's people out of of Egypt. You don't see all that. You see his evidence of his anger throughout the Exodus. It's there. That that fault is still there, but he is still continuing to follow God, listen to God, and obey God. And that's what these women represent. I didn't want it to just be my story. I wanted it to be a story where every woman could relate. That's why I chose this. Well, God did. He chose the ones that he wanted to um, represent different seasons of life in different areas. Um of the potential that God can see in us. Yeah. Now, Moses was the ancient I made reference to earlier, not a woman. But um, it's interesting that you uh-huh. you make the point that Moses, we don't know that Moses um, lost the, the frailty that made him a reluctant servant in the first place. We tend to think as soon as I take care of this area of weakness, as soon as this fault is resolved, as soon as this um, fear is overcome, then I can be useful for God. But what you're pointing out through the example of Moses is he's calling us just where we are at, at this point with all that stuff that we bring with us. Absolutely. He, he part of, and that's one of the things that I learned really studying his story, but also, you know, allowing the scripture and the story and the spirit to speak as I wrote the book is God doesn't necessarily want to quote unquote fix all the things that we think are wrong with us. He wants to use us just the way that we are, and he wants us to come to him just the way that we are. I think of the old hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea, just just as I am. I'm coming to him and trusting him to 
make the best of what I have to offer. And he does that. He does that. He might not do it right away. I mean, look at what it took a long time for Moses to develop into the leader that he was. And we have to be willing to work with the Spirit, allow the Spirit to work with us, and give God time to work in our lives. And we don't live in a world that, we live in a world that says, hurry up, do it right now. But that's not the economy that God works on. Yeah. Now, what are some of the key conversations that women could have with one another to encourage each other in their vulnerabilities and weakness, uh, and at the same time, invite compassion and listening when women come together? Because we tend to want to hide those areas that we're least proud of. Right. Well, I think the first thing that we as women have to do is be willing to have that honest conversation. And the first person that we need to have that honest conversation with, honestly, is ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need to be willing to say, you know what, this is a struggle that I'm dealing with. And and then be willing to share that with someone else. That That's the hardest part because especially in a church setting, and, and I love church Bible studies. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I love leading. I just finished leading a Bible study at my church, and I love that, and I love being in the house of God. But there's something about being in the warmth and coziness of somebody's den or in a coffee shop sitting outside on a patio. Um, there's something about that that's conducive for um, for being vulnerable. Sometimes when we're in church, we have our church face on and our church clothes on and our church mm-hmm. aura about ourselves. But when we are away from the building, so to speak, um, we tend to be a little bit more vulnerable. So that's what, that's what I would recommend is first having an honest conversation with yourself and really ex- allowing the Holy Spirit to examine you and allow, just examine yourself and, and what are your, and, and write those down. What are your fears? What are your faults? What are your frailties? Um, what are your failures? And be willing to admit those to yourself and then pray and ask God for, for a group of people to share and hold you accountable. That's another thing, too, is to have a group that is going to hold you accountable, not only build you up and encourage you, hey, you can do this, I understand, I, I have the same struggles, or I have a similar struggle, that, that me too kind of idea. But then also we want good Christian women, godly women, who are going to hold us accountable for thinking the right way. All right, we've, we've discovered mm-hmm. Scripture, we know what's going to, derail this negative train and put us back on the track of positivity and truth. So how are you doing with that? And, and maybe have a text group and encourage one another that way um, and hold each other accountable that way. And, and as I said, if it means meeting at a place that's not a church building, that is more conducive at times for that vulnerable, those vulnerable conversations. Yeah, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to give you a moment to talk about what it means for God to show his power through the fractured parts of our lives, because we have a hard time imagining that he can use us in that condition. And yet he demonstrates his power in some pretty significant ways under that scenario. Oh, for sure. And 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 I hate I don't want to the first example that I thought of was my was my own life. And so I'm certainly not tooting my horn. I am shouting out to God is my whole insecurity. I am an introvert. I have, I'm an insecure person. I grew up feeling less than, and I remember, I remember 
things that were said to me as a fourth and fifth grader that that insulted me, that put me down. And I, I remember those things now mm-hmm. as a grown adult and shattered that confidence. And that little girl who would knew she could pitch and she could probably pitch better than that girl out on the mound or just as good, but was scared to try out. I was scared. I was, I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of people making fun of me. So the fact that I've had the opportunity to work in partnership with God to put out not one, not two, but three books. Again, I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on God. And then have the opportunity to speak to you and many other media outlets and to go around the country and speak in front of people is the biggest transformation and the example of God using the weakest parts of us for his glory. Because this is not me. I am a no-makeup, give me baggy shirt, give me some baggy leggings and leave me at home with my dog and my people. <laughs> don't put me on an airplane and don't fix me all frilled up and everything like that and put me out on stage. That's not me. That's God in me. Me wants to stay home and me, I don't want to risk it. I don't want to write it. I don't want to try it. But God in me says, yes, this is what I'm calling you to. And because I trusted him with that very first message that he wrote on my heart many years ago when I started speaking and he proved himself faithful I now have a memory bank of faithfulness and I know he's calling me to it he's going to get me through it and I live by that motto and and I'm no different than anybody else you have the same story to tell I'm sure because God's worked in your life and done things in ministry in your life that you never thought possible everybody has a story to share um and if you don't have a story to share yet, there's a story in you waiting to be shared. Amen. Well, the book, once again, is Hidden Potential, Revealing What God Can Do Through You. Wendy Pope, it is always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, as the gap between generations widens, and it always does, And the shared experiences dwindle. Adults, they find it increasingly difficult to connect with and remain relevant to today's young people. So what values are you able to pass on to that generation to help them become the next great generation? And how do we communicate those values effectively? Well, that's the subject of a new book written by my next guest. In Guiding the Next Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults, Jonathan Catherman, he's a sociologist and international best-selling author, he presents specific life challenges that teens and young adults will need to overcome and thrive and build something greater than the previous generation. Now, he provides relevant examples, practical steps with each challenge, and we're going to talk about that with him today. Well, Jonathan Catherman is the author of the international best-selling book, The Manual to Manhood. He co-authored the bestseller, The Manual to Middle School, with his sons, Reed and Cole, and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Life and The Girl's Guide to Conquering Middle School with his wife, Erica. An award-winning cultural strategist and leading education trainer specializing in the character and leadership development of youth, he speaks worldwide about the principles and strengths that empower greatness in children, teens, and young adults. He and his family live in North Carolina, where they uh, founded and direct the 1M Mentoring Foundation, and we are delighted with all of this social distancing to have you with us here today. Jonathan Catherman, welcome. 
It is so nice to be here. Isn't technology great? We are like we're sitting next to each other, but we're so <laughs> it, far away. It really is incredible. Before we get started, I have to ask you, how are you and your family doing? You know, we are doing well. Uh, we've gotten a lot of gardening done in the last week or two. <laughs> well, there you go. I wish you'd come over and get some of mine done, but that's a whole nother, <laughs> another subject. <laughs> <laughs> you begin your book, Guiding the Next Great Generation, uh, bringing us back to 1997 with a campaign that was launched by Apple, their Think Different ad campaign, uh, in which they make the point that people that are thought to be maybe just a little bit out there now were heralded as geniuses sometime later. And then uh, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do it. Why do you begin by encouraging us to think different? Well, because if we have a mindset that doesn't shift with the needs of today, then we get caught up in the thoughts and, and, and demands of yesterday. Yes, those travel forward, but if we aren't aware of and willing to think a little different, if we don't have if we have a fixed mindset, then we're not able to change and meet the needs of young people today. And I don't mind being called one of the crazy ones who thinks he's <laughs> going to put a round peg in a square hole or, or try to invent something new. And, and in all reality, is, is what we're looking at with young people today isn't so much new. It's just a new way of thinking about how do we share mm -hmm. with them what is truly valuable. Now, that's been the challenge of every generation, where the adults look back or down at the teenagers, at tween, tweens and young adults, and there's, there seems to be a difficulty understanding one another. Is there something unique with the generation that's coming up now and adults that is uh, different than what we've seen in the past? Absolutely, there is. Um, I'll, have your listeners think back to the first time someone told them, when I was your age. Right. And, and then it was a comparison story about when I was your age, we used to walk uphill both ways in the school in the snow, you know, or something that seemed outrageous. Mm -hmm. Yet the that experience today, when we tell young people when I was your age, is really a history lesson first and relevant, maybe. And the reason for that is because cultural norms shift. In fact, as a sociologist, we can go back and measure the distance of a shift of a cultural norm between the silent gen, the boomers, and Gen X. And then if we take a look at how consistent that movement is, we can find a pattern. Well, if we compare that pattern of how the cultural norm, things that we, are, we believe to be normal in our culture today, has changed so dramatically with the millennials and the Gen Zs coming of age, we see the cultural norm has shifted what would usually take three or four generations to experience. So, yes, things are much different today than when we were their age and technology being the major driving force. At the same time, there are values that remain the same throughout the ages. I think our tendency is to look at changes that are occurring in younger generations and emphasize the elements of it that are so different and remote from our own experience that we look down on them and fail to see the potential that young people have moving forward and the opportunity we have for influence. Is that generally um, how generations look to one another as uh, the march of time moves forward and older generations lament <laughs> the younger? Well, th that's been going on forever. I mean, whether mm -hmm. we look back at, at what uh, Plato or Socrates said about the next generation and how they're failing, or we take a look at the lyrics of music or predictions of uh, future workforce capabilities. That's been the case 
marching throughout time that the older generation looks down on the younger generation. But what we're seeing today is we now see the younger generation more as a threat the older generation does. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're unprepared to know how to deal with them. When we're unprepared, any demand feels like a threat. But when we're prepared, life's demands feel like challenges, and our brains love challenges. Our brains hate threats. We thrive in challenges. We survive threats. So my calling in guiding the next great generation book is to help prepare parents and teachers, grandparents, mentors, how to work with young people today in a way that helps both we as the adult and the young people to be better prepared to take on the demands of life, see them as challenges, and then perform well. So, yes, we've had the same looking down on over the generations, but we don't have to. It doesn't have to be based out of a fear of their failure or our lack of connecting. When we can prepare, take on the challenge, they will become the next great generation. In Guiding the Next Great Generation, you offer four challenges that you believe every person needs to be prepared for. What are those challenges? Sure. Challenge one is we need to build bridges between the generations. And we can talk about why that space is so wide and the challenge it is to to bridge the gap because we cannot close the gap between the generations, but we can bridge the distance. Challenge number two is we need to We need to, and we need to teach the next great generation to practice stewardship before leadership. That's challenge two. Challenge three is transform raw talents into valued strengths. And challenge four is to live with purpose. I know one of the things that um, we wonder about is in the first challenge that you offer is um, that we need to uh, have shared experiences or and build bridges because uh, in order to have those shared experiences, what prevents us from having that um, experience that today? I, I think our first response might be, well, it's technology that's keeping us apart, but is it as simple as just put your phone down and we're going to have shared experiences or what do we need to do to tackle that first challenge? Sure. Well, the big part of, of building a bridge in between two sides that are far apart from one another is we've got to learn that we're building from both sides. So it's not just about putting your phone down and look at me in the eye. It's about, look, I'm moving towards you, which means I have to have empathy and interest in what it is you're interested in. And from the other side, that would be young people, they're looking in our direction, thinking and acting in the same way. So the very first thing we need to do is we need to come together in a way that we recognize we're moving towards one another and towards other's interests. The second thing is we've got to in a way that's going to last. So it's not just a temporary um, a feel-good experience. It's something that we can take with us into the future that will stand the test of time. And we also need to celebrate when we are meeting in the middle and when we're, when we're uh, making that distance connected. The example I use in the book is the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, when it opened in 1937, Martin, Martin County to the north and San Francisco to the south, previous to that was seen to be too far of a distance to bridge. But exactly as I just described, they didn't build in one direction, like San Francisco building all the way to Marin County, just pointing their finger saying they're not doing enough to get to us. Instead, both sides build equally and, and with the intention of meeting in the middle, using materials that they agreed upon. Well, that's the test of time. And when they met in the middle, they celebrated. And then they opened the bridge and hundreds of thousands of people celebrated with them. When we're building towards the next generation, they're building towards us. We've got to practice those same principles build from both sides, build to last, and build to celebrate. That's why I wrote actually two books, 
mm-hmm. guiding the next great generation and becoming the next great generation. The Becoming book is written for young people. Same exact content, just a little different language. Guiding the next great generation is built for those adults who want to just do as it's described, guide younger ones to see, do, and become all God created them to be. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with Jonathan Catherman. He's the author of several books. Today we're talking about Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. The book is published by Ravel, and we'll be back in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Catherman, author of Guiding the Next Great Generation, Rethinking How Teens Become Confident and Capable Adults. Now, as I mentioned, you offer four challenges that every person needs to be prepared for. I, as an adult, I think, uh, I think you know, once you get past the handbook that says, um, as an adult, you tell people to turn that down, put your phone down, and get off the grass, and you move toward <laughs> <laughs> building a relationship with young people, we often wonder, as you pointed out, you need to start from both ends. It, do young people have an incentive to, to build toward uh, adults, and are we responsible for generating that interest or in helping to convince them that we, we should value each other and benefit from one another? You know, in all of the young people I've worked with in the last, say, 10 years, which is tens of thousands of teenagers, I see an authentic interest in relationships, and that includes relationships with the older generation particularly when there is something of value that can be shared. And I don't mean that they're just receiving, they also want to give. So if there's a two-way street in that relationship of giving and receiving and sharing, then yes, there is an interest in that next generation to have time spent with, learn experiences from, and they also want to be able to teach us what they're interested in. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. The other challenge that you write about is practicing stewardship before leadership. Explain what you mean by that. Okay. In previous generations, so then I'll go again, go back to the silent gen, boomers, and gen X. We experienced most leadership from a two-layered model where we had leaders over followers. Well, that model has been mostly rejected by millennials. Those would be the generation born between 1983 and the year 2000. And Generation Z, which would be the generation born after the year 2000, they've rejected the leaders over followers model, and they are looking for a model that includes stewardship. So it's now a three-layer model, membership, stewardship, then leadership. So when I present in the book to practice stewardship before leadership, For years, we've been telling young people, you're a leader, you can be a leader, try to be a leader, but really we haven't given them the tools they need to succeed through stewardship. So the value of stewardship, the responsible management, supervision, and protection, what's been entrusted to your care, is the the filter to leadership. If you are practicing management, supervision, protection, then you have no business in leadership, No, no reason to be there. So when we talk about practicing stewardship before leadership, we're trying to communicate, show that next generation that what those who can be faithful with little can learn to be faithful with much, and those who have been faithful with much, much is expected of them. So mm-hmm. it's a new model that is hard for some of the older generation to accept, but really we've been, we believe in it. We just have never phrased it like that and presented it to young people in that way. 
give an example of uh, stewardship versus leadership um, with McKinsey and how that played out in her life. Can you share McKinsey's story? Well, McKinsey's a remarkable young lady, and she's featured in the Becoming the Next Great Generation book. Um, she lives here in North Carolina, and she started a food bank um, that is the exact opposite of what you would think of as a food bank. Um, it looks like a corner market, an old-time grocery store. There's music playing. There's shopping carts. Um, you have an experience when you come there in a, in a place of need that helps you retain a level of dignity that you desire and also receive the services that you need. And the interesting thing about McKinsey's story is she doesn't come from a family of, of wealth and they're just now looking for some way to be nice back to their community, which is very respectable. Instead, she came from a place of need. And when her family were in a similar situation, she said, this has got to be different. This doesn't feel right. We're very appreciative for the care people are providing for us, but could this be done different? And by changing the perspective of how you run a, a uh, food distribution for communities in need, she went from serving tens to hundreds to thousands in her community, including before uh, school and after school uh, meals, weekend backpacks, emergency needs, um, elder uh, care delivery. She is such a remarkable young woman as a teenager who has empathy overflowing from her. And, and her energy level, though, is like through the roof. Watching her interact with people, like watching lightning, um, she just sparks everywhere. But her passion and interest of others, putting their needs before her own convenience, is a remarkable example of stewardship. And in turn, people have gone to her and said, how did you do that? Can you show us? What that is now is an invitation to leadership. Her intention mm -hmm. wasn't to lead. Her intention was to steward. But by being such a great steward, she's now been invited into levels of leadership that she did not purposely pursue. You write about uh, the five factors of leadership in, in the book we're talking about, Guiding the Next Great Generation. Um, which factors do you think are missing in most of today's generations? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one because now you're asking me to cast judgment on a generation. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we're talking about practicing leadership, um, that we have to have vision, direction, protection, and succession, right? Um, that leaders... Uh, provide those those contexts to people. I think that the, the one of the areas that that our emerging generation um, struggles with is the concept of uh, protection. Not how do they protect others, but how will they be protected? So vision they have a clear mental picture of preferred future, direction an understandable course to take in pursuit of that vision. They they believe they've got that one nailed, but when it comes down to the rubber meet the road, that's where they look to us and help us with that process. But the protection, the act of preventing harm uh, or suffering or injury, they, they seek that from us. They want to provide that. I believe that's the one that they question most. So if you're an adult in a role of influence in young people's life, when they see that, that you've got their back, not under any circumstance, it's not like you, you would, you, you know, you throw caution to the wind, but when they believe you are there to protect them, they can act more effectively with that vision direction, learn how to protect, and then also the succession, the plan of passing on value one person to another. They're tuned in tight to that model. And um, if we can guide them in the process, I believe that they will do even better than us 
when they come into their own in the not too near future. Yeah, that's so encouraging to hear you say that. Um, we're all familiar with American Idol and America's Got Talent, the phrase, you know, you can do anything. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. <laughs> you know, you can do anything you want to do. Your ch- third challenge is uh, transform raw talents into valued strengths. Uh, that seems so important to me because the self-esteem is being so built up, but I'm not sure there's a, 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 any direction. And what do I do with what I'm good at or would like to be good at? Talk a bit about transforming raw talents into valued strengths and why that's important. You couldn't have said it better because we've said it, unfortunately, far too many times. And we've told young people that they're good at anything and everything. And the truth of the matter is they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, sometimes they're terrible, but we don't want to hurt their fragile feelings. That's our perspective. But the truth is the students I work with would rather hear, you know what? You're not that great at that, which is okay. If you're passionate about it, keep going for it. You know what you're really good at? I see this area of talent in your life. And we can transform and develop that into a strength if we follow this model. The problem is, as, as the older generation, we adults, we misunderstand what the word talent is. And often we have communicated that to young people that mm. talent equals professional. And that's not the case. Here's a really good example, and I'm going to use you as my guinea pig in this. Do you know a young person who is really good at something? I do, Yes. Okay, who are they and what are they really good at? Um, well, she's my niece and she's a musician. Okay, perfect. What instrument or, or does she play? Vocal. Okay, so would you say that your niece is a talented singer? Yes. Okay, I would say no. Now, before you jump through the, the line here and, and say, how could you say that about my niece? <laughs> That's my niece. And, and the same thing for all of your listeners because some of your listeners say, my grandson is a talented football player. Um, my son is a, or my daughter is a, is a talented uh, painter. Your, your daughter is a talented artist who, if she sings well, has to train that voice. Right? And if you have a, a son that's a talented football player, no, he's not. He's a talented athlete who is trained in the sport of football. And if your daughter can paint, she's an artist who's trained in the a totally different type of art than singing. She is using paints. So there's a different model we need to adapt. The talent is the way you think, feel, or behave that can be positively applied, but now we have to apply training. That's a process in which we're taught the skills needed to perform a task. And, and following training, we've got to put in the time. That's commitment to practice and patience. So we have talent, training, and timing. And the, the kind of the key that holds it all together is the, the stewardship of treasures. So talent, training, timing, and treasures. And that's, that's how we do we take care of our relationships, our reputation, our finances, and the opportunities that we've been given. When we have the com- combination of talent, the way you think, feel, or behave well, training, the skills you need to perform a task, timing, that practice and patience, and stewardship of treasure, now you have a strength. So go back to your niece. If, um, if she is... If she's singing somewhere and, and a, a, a producer walks up and says, you have an amazing voice, I'd like you to come play bass guitar in a band. She goes, why would I play bass guitar if I've got a great voice? Because her strength is not bass guitar. Her strength is her voice. And the same thing if your grandson's going to get a, a scholarship to play on a football team at your favorite university. If he's a linebacker, but they're recruiting a kicker, 
your grandson's not going to get the recruiter or the scholarship call. So we have to see that talent transforms into strength, but it's strength that we are valued for when it comes to performances like on the job or in a group or in a performance like your uh, niece does when she sings. Mm, That's so good. I I was going to say that. I just didn't want you to look bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're not wrong, though, because we as our our habit is to say talent is and then we we it's essentially when we say, oh, you're such a talented singer. When we then watch America's Got Talent or on one of the other talent shows or we hear people talk about talent, we equate that talent goes to become the pro. And yeah, it does, but really it's, it's who, what's the strength value that you bring to the organization. Absolutely. The book is published by Ravel and available in bookstores. You need to pick this and the other version up as well. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to engage in conversation on a new book titled The Spiritually Vibrant Home. Now, we'll talk about what that means and the background here. But in 2018, Lutheran Hour Ministries and the Barna uh, Group, they undertook a three-year collaborative research project. The first area of their research was spiritual conversations in the digital age, which paved the way for everyday Christians to kind of think Uh, differently about how to engage in spiritual conversations. Well, the second area of that research had to do with households of faith, specifically turning the lens of research toward how the Christian faith is being nurtured and lived out in private with the people who come and go from under these Christian roofs. Well, that's what this book is now about. It tells us what the research uh, uncovered and how we can live more vibrant homes. Again, the title is The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Don Everts is uh, reluctant to call himself an evangelist, but for decades he's found himself talking about Jesus with all sorts of skeptical and curious people. He is a writer for Lutheran Hour Ministries and teaching pastor for Bonham Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He has also um, been a speaker and trainer for Alpha and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His many books, 13 I think is the number, include Jesus with Dirty Feet, I Once Was Lost, The Reluctant Witness, and The Spiritually Vibrant Home we'll be talking about here today. He and his wife, Wendy, live in a neighborhood founded over 200 years ago that now has two public schools, four churches, one mosque, one Hindu temple, and both a Costco and a Walmart. And we're delighted to have him with us today to talk about The Spiritually Vibrant Home. Well, Georgine, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat. Well, it's always uh, good to hear from you. Now, let's begin with this um, study that uh, in 2018 that Lutheran Hour Ministries and Barna Group undertook because it revealed some significant findings about how, uh, in the second half anyway, how uh, believers who self-identify as serious Christians live out their faith in their homes. Tell us a bit about how the study took place. Yeah, so uh, we were curious about how is the faith within households, within homes, how is it passed on? Uh, and so there were two phases to the research. Uh, first of all, we did a lot of interviews, lengthy interviews with household members. And so we'd sit down with all the people in the household uh, to, to kind of learn and find out from different types of households what, how they interact with each other, not just about the faith, but in general. And then from there, we went into the second phase of the research project, which was the quantitative, which we, we, we did uh, uh, a few thousand surveys across the country 
based on what we learned in our interviews. And so through these extensive surveys, uh, the really smart people at Barna were able to discern a lot about uh, what is happening inside of homes, uh, what the different dynamics are, and what actually uh, helps a home be more spiritually vibrant. Now, one might assume that this is the nuclear family that you're observing uh, and, you know, four individuals living within a household. But what you discovered is that the definition of a household and a family or a home, if you will, was broader than the average person might imagine. And it connected with the broader community, at least those homes that were spiritually vibrant. That's right. In, in, in two ways, I was surprised by this. So, so one mm-hmm. was just pure demographics. So when I think of a household, I, I think of exactly what you said, right? That nuclear, you know, two parents, you know, two, 2.1 kids or whatever it is. That's actually really rare. Uh, these days. And, and, and it was actually just a small, thin part of history in the U.S. where that was the normal, quote-unquote, normal household. What's more common these days are multi-generational households. Uh, there are a lot of single-parent households. Uh, there are roommate households. There are people who live alone. Uh, about a quarter of all U.S. adults actually live alone. Uh, and so when you think about households, where we live, it's actually, there's a lot of diversity, uh, and then the other thing that surprised me, Georgine, because we did the research, but then we also wanted to look at what does the Bible have to say about households? Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing there was that a household in the Bible uh, was, was, it is actually a lot more, um, it, it's larger than we tend to think. And so you might think of it as like a core household, the people who live under the roof with you, uh, and then an extended household around there. And so households in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, were between 50 and 100 people because it would be kind of your core household, but then it would be extended family, it would be friends, it would be travelers who needed a place to stay, it would be maybe people you worked with. And so that was also surprising. And so you combine this with the fact that one of the things Barna found is that the spiritual vibrancy within our home isn't just shaped and colored by the people in our home, it is shaped by a broader circle of people of what you might consider your extended household. Now that was relatives. surprising to me as well. Yeah. And, and so it's people who visit your household. It's um, maybe a tutor who comes in to tutor. It's one of your ch- child's friends or boyfriend or girlfriend, or it's your aunt and uncle, or it's the grandparents coming in. All of these people who are in and out of the household really have an impact on the spiritual vibrancy within the home as well. Now, the group um, you surveyed, how did you select these groups and identify them as households of faith, if you will? Yeah, good good question. So the really smart people at Barna are are (laughs) really experienced at doing this. And so they know how to select and, and get at the kind of people that they want. So we wanted we wanted a group of exemplars. And so we didn't just look for people who self-describe or self-select as Christian, but we wanted people who are practicing Christians. And in the world of Barna's research, that's not self-selected. People don't say, I am a practicing Christian. They have to answer certain questions, not correctly, they have to answer certain questions a certain way in order for Barna to say they are practicing Christians. So they're they're in the Bible, they're they're, uh, going to church on a regular basis, etc., so, so we started by wanting practicing Christians, and then we, we narrowed it even further 
through asking a question, how important is your faith to you? And then we, we only uh, allowed people into, this, into our data who, who answered very important. My faith is very important to me. And so Barna had this way of narrowing down to a group of exemplars who, who are practicing Christians, their faith is very important to them, and then they took it a step further, and this is where all, all those people got into the study, but then Barna was able, just in the way they do, by looking at their various answers to you know the, the dozens and dozens of questions that every person answered, and they were able to find evidence of where the faith is really thriving in the home. And so they took those, and they called them spiritually vibrant households, and they asked the question, what do they have in common with each other? And this is one of the really fun parts of the findings, are that there are three habits that correspond to spiritual vibrancy in the home. And the really good news, Georgine, is that those habits are things that actually any household, Mm -hmm. whether, whether it's single parent, whether it's nuclear, whether it's urban, whether it's rural, um... Any household can work on and nurture these three habits, which correspond in a direct way to the spiritual vibrancy of those in the home. Which is exciting news. Uh, Now, the title of the book is The Spiritually Vibrant Home, but the subtitle, which I initially thought, oh, that's kind of a clever way of putting it, but it's actually (laughs) more meaningful than I originally thought. The Power of, of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Explain what each of the three of them are, and then when we come back from our break, we'll talk about um, how we can become more vibrant in our households. What are these three things? Yeah, so these are the three habits, or this is my way of talking about the three habits. Messy prayers uh, means that it's people who are applying spiritual disciplines within the home, doing something in prayer with each other, doing something with the Bible with each other. And so I call that messy prayers, and we can talk about why I call it messy, but there's some... There's a way that the household is interacting with God together. And then you have loud tables. The the second habit is uh, the presence of spiritual conversations. And so households that talk with each other, have an open atmosphere, a dialogue with each other about their faith, about their doubts, about their emotions, the things they're feeling. There's something about having loud tables, uh, a ready conversation that also corresponds with spiritual vibrancy. And then the last one, and this, is the, this was the most surprising one that none of us guessed going in, is open doors. There, there is a strong correlation between households that practice hospitality and those that have a vibrant faith. And so there's a connection there too. So uh, messy prayers, loud tables, and open doors, all three of those are things anyone can grow in. Mm-hmm. And, that, and the research tells us it will correspond to a more vibrant faith within the home. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Don Everts, his latest book, The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. The book is published by InterVarsity Press and a great resource, uh, particularly as we are anticipating uh, the the lifting of this uh, quarantine in which we will once again have the opportunity to interact with our communities. This is a great study during the uh, the interim. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Don Everts. He's the uh, author of The Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Uh, it features original research from Barna that I think is very helpful and 
helping us to understand how to enhance the vibrancy of our homes when it comes to spiritual things. Now, as mentioned, um, Don, the, the subtitle of the book, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors, gives us a clue as to what contributes to a spiritually vibrant home. So let's take each of them, and maybe you can fill them out a bit so that we can recognize how I might uh, experience transformation in my own household as I embrace these things here. The Power of Messy Prayers. Prayers can be sometimes awkward when we uh, come together. Uh, talk a bit about how people engage in spiritual activity in the home and that contributes to the, their spiritual vibrancy. Yeah, uh, you know, it may, may not seem like a shock to people that, oh, if you're praying or in the Bible together as a household, your faith will be strong. So th- there's no huge shock there. But what was uh, really fun to find out uh, is that these didn't have to be high quality. In, in other words, I, I know a lot of dads, a lot of moms or grandparents who made me feel like, well, I, you know, I, I'm awkward when I pray out loud or I, I wouldn't know what to do in the Bible. You know, do, do I have to lead like a really good you know, family worship time or something like that? And one of the things that uh, they found in the research is, is the presence of spiritual coaching. But all spiritual coaching was is someone taking the initiative. Someone nudging the household. So, so for example, uh, I, I did a whole class with families at my church when we were kind of learning these findings. And a lot of the dads said, I, I just don't pray out loud. I don't pray out loud in my home. And I said, okay, here's all you have to do. Just initiate it, but don't do it. So, so if, if, if someone says, a father or anyone, hey, should we have a prayer before we leave on our vacation? Or, hey, before we all go to bed, should we just have a quick prayer with each other? They don't have to actually do the prayer. It's just that act of initiating it. It's the act of saying, hey, let's, let's do this. Or, hey, could you pray for us? It's that nudge that makes the difference. And so the prayers can be messy. They're imperfect. They're not, you know what I mean? They don't have to be yeah, doctrinally yeah. sound. You don't need to hire a professional, in other words. <laughs> As I started to share these findings with people, it's amazing the, the kind of pressure that it takes off, mm-hmm. uh, where, where someone says, I, I want to have my faith be a more active part of my household. I just don't know what to do. And so to find out, all I have to do is nudge. All I have to do is say, hey, before, before we eat, before we cut the turkey, uh, could someone pray for us? You know, just that act of initiating uh, makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's one of the really good findings. Uh, now, we also, we've created other tools to help people with prayer, to help people, you know, hang out in the Bible with each other, because we know that will be helpful for households. So at least in our ministries, we're creating resources. But the really good news is, it doesn't matter where you're starting. Messy prayers are fine. One of the questions you ask and have just answers is, are we meant to relate to God as a household? I think that that's been a big question mark for a lot of people. It, does it add to my spiritual vibrancy? Does it create a vibrancy in the home? And I appreciate the, the idea that, yes, uh, this is an area that we can, uh, we can engage in. Now, loud tables, <laughs> helping our households have <laughs> spiritual conversations. Yeah, this builds on our first year of research, which underscored the importance uh, and the vibrancy and the beauty and the delightfulness of having spiritual conversations. And what we found is that households that talk about life with each other will talk about their faith. Just being able to go live and talk about things that are happening, uh, it it corresponds with greater vibrancy. And One of the interesting things that we found uh, uh, is that if... uh, 
everyone in the household is all together, the odds are they're eating food. Mm-hmm. And so of all, you know, we asked about all kinds of activities that households do. And, and what we found is that food is this great uniter of a household, whether they're eating out at a restaurant or whether they're eating within the home, uh, that, it, that is this great opportunity that everyone is together. And so it's this great opportunity to say, how do we just nudge? Again, just nudge a little bit to have a louder table rather than, you know, everyone grabs their food and heads back onto their private screen, <laughs> you know, whatever they were watching, whatever game they were playing. To just nudge and say, okay, how do we create an atmosphere that's open to conversation? How do we, how do we spark conversations? And so if you're a household that doesn't talk a lot with each other, you probably don't want to start by saying, let's have a very deep, vulnerable conversation <laughs> yeah. about our faith. Okay, don't start there. Just, just dial it up a little bit. Hey, what are some highs and lows from your guys' day? You know, little, little things like that. We, we developed a deck of cards. Um, because we, we realize how important sparking conversations is for Christian faith in the home. So it's, they're playing cards. You can play, you know, war or, you know, go fish, whatever you want with them. But each card has a different conversation starter. And some of them are just everyday things. Some of them kind of deal with joys and pains of life. And then some of them talk about the faith. Just creating little tools like this to help families take that nudge let's nurture conversation a little bit more in our household. Again, you don't have to have perfect answers to any question that folks have. Um, but just knowing that having those conversations can really help. And, you know, the research reveals a lot that uh, moms outperform dads in this area. Grandparents outperform everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, everyone looks to grandparents or, or the wide the largest number of people when we said, who, who would you prefer to talk to about life or about faith? Grandparents always ranked really high. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's encouraging to know people are actually looking for conversation. It just takes someone taking the initiative to spark those conversations. Yeah. And again, there's tools we can create so, so, uh, to help people do just that. I love one of the tools that you offer in the book that you start with light fare. You provide a steady diet and then offer a rich dessert, just kind of how you uh, engage in this kind of conversation. Again, you'll find that in the spiritually vibrant home. The last of the three is open doors, and that is hospitality, which uh, sometimes we feel intimidated because we think we have to have Martha Stewart level um, (laughs) uh, fare in our home. Yeah. Uh, But how do we open our doors and, and how does that contribute to a spiritually vibrant home? Yeah, it's interesting, Georgine, because, uh, you know, the, the researchers are very, very shy about causality, right? They're very shy to say, if you do A, B will happen. Mm-hmm. But they come close to it on this one. I mean, they, they said there is a strong correlation between how many people you have in and out of your home and the spiritual vibrancy in your home. And it doesn't even matter. This is what I find fascinating. That's true if the, if the household is purposefully hospitable, like God calls us to be, inviting lonely people in, inviting you know, travelers in to care for them and love them, but also if you're inviting people in your home to help you. <laughs> so, so let's say you need help uh, you know, working on your shower, or you need help with homework, or you need help with your finances, and you're inviting people into your home to help you. It doesn't matter, or, or uh, thirdly, if these are people who are just friends and friends like family or extended relatives, and they're in and out of your home. It doesn't matter why they're coming into your home. And so we don't completely understand this, but what we do know is that having people in and out of your household, 
So having a kind of extended household nurtures the faith. And, and so there's some mystery there. We don't know exactly why that is, but we know that it's true. And to me, as a theologian, uh, I'm not, I guess I was surprised, but, but then when you look at the Scripture and how God yes. calls us to hospitality, and, you know, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a healthy thing. And, that, and I've seen this play out, Georgine. So, so when we invite, you know, a dear friend, Bosetti, who's Nigerian-born, and, uh, and, and she's a friend from church, and when she comes over to the house, my kids and my mom, who lives with us, they get to see her talk about her faith in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it grows their faith. But, Mike, we also, I have a non-Christian friend who comes into my home. And even having them in the home, everyone around gets to see me interact with them and gets to see my wife interact with them and answer their questions. And there's even something about that that seems to uh, grow our faith as well. So, in a culture where chronic loneliness uh, is rampant yes. uh, and depression related to loneliness is high, in, in, in a world where people are left alone and we need to create relationship in order to maybe someday, God willing, share the gospel, it's kind of fun to find out that having a more open door is is actually good for you, too. Well, this is a great book. And again, I think it's a great COVID-19 study <laughs> because we're all perhaps appreciating more than before access that we once had to one another and enjoying fellowship That's with right. one another. Uh, the Spiritually Vibrant Home, The Power of Messy Prayers, Loud Tables, and Open Doors. Don Everts, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. Thank you so much for your work and for talking with us here today. Well, Georgine, thank you for your work, and thanks for thinking alongside me for the last half hour. <laughs> you stay safe. You too. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow I am looking forward to a conversation with Dennis Prager. He is uh, one of the um, stars of the documentary. I guess you can call him that. He's a syndicated radio host with Salem Communications, and he, along with Adam Carolla, have uh, produced No Safe Spaces. It's a documentary about free speech, and uh, this is a must-see documentary if you care about this first first principle, this first right to free speech, and want to understand how it's being undermined in ways that you may have underestimated. It is a fascinating overview, and it features not just voices from those on the right, but those on the left as well, who are increasingly concerned about the toll uh, that the uh, effort to silence opposition is taking on college campuses and beyond. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of uh, Salem's first um, step into the movie business by streaming No Safe Spaces, and you can check that out. Uh, It's available online now at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. Now, the good news is, if you're a KPDQ listener, and you are, you can use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. Again, that's nosafespaces.com. We'll have an opportunity to talk with Dennis Prager tomorrow about that very thing. And I think if, um, if you have the opportunity to listen up for that conversation, you'll be convinced, as I am now, that this is an issue that we must confront Forcefully. So I'm looking forward to a conversation with him on tomorrow's program. Well, Oregon's primary election is still scheduled for May the 19th. You probably received your voter pamphlet in the mail today or it's soon to be on its way. Despite other states postponing their primaries due to COVID-19, the pandemic. Well, that's thanks to Oregon's mail-in voting system 
which doesn't require large groups to gather at polling sites. Now, there are some other states that are trying to move to this system. And part of the concern about voter fraud is that it's not just a switch that you flick overnight. There are provisions that have to be made for the safety and integrity of the election. So it's not a simple, oh, we're just going to send some things out. But anyway, Oregon has been doing it for a while. So we're in a position to take advantage of that uh, opportunity. Now, some of the big races across the city, county, and state, Portland's uh, mayor and city commissioners are going to be on the ballot. There are 18 candidates that are going to appear on the ballot next to uh, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler's name, who's running for re-election. According to the city auditor, four candidates faced off in a virtual debate on the 30th of March. You may or may not have noticed with everything going on. Um, uh, They took on uh, Wheeler in a debate hosted by the City Club of Portland or City Club isn't meeting these days. Well, the crowded field also extends to the open city commissioner positions. The city auditor lists a total of 35 candidates for commissioner seats. Former Portland Mayor Sam Adams is running against Commissioner Chloe Udaley for commissioner position number four. Commissioner Amanda Fritz is not running for re-election, so commissioner position one is up for grabs. There's also a special election. It's also being held the same day as the primary to fill the late Nick Fish's uh, seat for commissioner position number two. He died in January after a battle with cancer. Also on the ballot, Metro Measure 26210. Uh, Metro's new proposed homeless uh, services tax will put a 1% tax on individuals making $125,000 a year and couples making $200,000 a year. It would also place a separate 1% tax on businesses that generate more than $5 million a year in revenue. And again, this is a homelessness service tax. Metro officials estimate the measure would bring in about $250 million to be spent on things like addiction and mental health services, employment support, and rent assistance. With the COVID-19 pandemic, a recent poll suggests that Portlanders would welcome the new tax. We'll see if that's true when we go to the ballot. Also, Portland Measure 26209, Portland's proposed gas tax renewal. Uh, 26209 is a replacement for the four-year measure that voters narrowly passed in 2016. The city estimated that 10 cents per gallon fuel tax will raise $74.5 million over four years beginning in January of next year. Then there's uh, on the ballot Centennial 26208, which you can, if you're in that area, can check that out. With regard to the U.S. Senate, Oregonians are also going to be voting for a U.S. Senator and five U.S. representatives. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley, he uh, at one point was one uh, pondering a bid for the presidency. He's going to run for re-election instead. Republican Joe Ray Perkins, Paul Romero, Robert Schwartz and John Rebick are looking up uh, to race against him in November. And uh, the U.S. House of Representatives in the 2nd Congressional District only Um, Oregon's only um, Republican in Congress, Representative Greg Walden, announced plans last October to retire. Seven Republicans and four Democrats are running to fill his seats. I'm very sorry to see him go, but that's the way things go. Also, Oregon's second congressional district and secretary of state are on the ballot. The second highest ranking position in Oregon is an open race. Republican Dennis Richardson, you might recall, died in office in 2019 after a battle with brain cancer. His replacement, a Republican, agreed not to run for reelection when accepting the interim appointment. Uh, three state senators are on the ballot. Uh, Senator 
uh, Kim Thatcher from Kaiser, Senator Mark Haas from Beaverton, and Senator Shamia Fagan from Portland. Uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner is also running as a Democrat. She ran for Congress against Representative Walden in 2018. In the last election, Democrats won a supermajority in both chambers of the Oregon legislature. Still, they lacked the numbers to produce a quorum by themselves in the Senate, hence Republicans taking something of a sabbatical, if you will, which Republicans took advantage of by staging two walkouts to push their agenda. Uh, Democratic Party of Oregon Chairwoman uh, Casey Hansen told the Associated Press that Democrats are looking to capitalize on the president's record and dissatisfaction over GOP boycotts. Um, So that's going to be uh, featured on the ballot. Also, Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, the Democrat elected to that office in 2012, is being challenged by a Republican, Michael Cross of Salem, who launched the flush down Kate Brown recall effort. And the state treasurer, Democratic Tobias Reed of Portland, serving served 10 years as the state representative of Oregon's 27th district before being elected uh, Oregon State Treasurer in 2016. His Republican challenger in the race is former Lake Oswego Councilor Jeff Gudman. He's looking for a rematch in the general election this year. Some important dates to keep in mind. April 22nd through the 24th, voters' pamphlets will be delivered. The 28th of this month, voter registration deadline um, comes. And on the 29th, the first ballots will be mailed by May 19th, the primary election day. Those ballots must be returned to the elections offices. And of course, those will be mailed because we don't have personnel manning those offices. I don't know if they'll have the drive-by, as has been the case uh, for many years in Oregon, to drop those ballots off this year. But we'll, uh, we'll let you know if that is the case. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Dennis Prager, featured in No Safe Spaces. Uh, looking forward to that conversation and hope you will join us for that as well. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It's always a pleasure to hang out. Even though we are socially distanced from one another, we can come together at 93.9 KPDQ at 4 o'clock. Have a great night. We'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.